0: Well, I'd like to pose. (laughs) There is no rule that says a dog can't take the Holy Sacrament. (laughs) Air Bud 3, Pope Bud 1.
1: Okay,
2: you know what, Red? I think you've got mine beat. That's pretty damn good.
1: That is really good. Unfortunately, there actually is very specific Catholic doctrine that dogs do not have immortal souls, which is bullshit. Um, I'll go on record and say that that is bullshit. Um, But I remember hearing a priest say this to a group of people at my university's catholic center. I'm like, "Wow, heartless."
2: I do understand why Martin
0: yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just like puts a little paw print on the uh, <laughs> on the grievances nailed oh, to the door. So <laughs> He's uh, running for pope.
2: <laughs> <laughs> He's running for pop.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the uh, overly sarcastic podcast. I almost forgot the title of our own show. Uh-
0: <laughs> Great start. Everything's going. Everything's going fantastic.
1: Uh, I am blue, and I am joined by red.
0: I made my first batch of cocoa for the season, so I'm I'm, I'm enjoying the fruits of my labors over here.
1: Uh, very nice. I was actually listening back to um to the one year podcast anniversary episode from last year, where there was a lot of discussion of fall. And I'm like, oh yeah, no. All all these answers of like, what's your favorite part of fall? It's like, oh, you know, the weather and like the soups and like hot cocoa. It's like all that stuff slaps. I don't think we came back with with leaf updates um through the rest oh, of that no. season, which is tragic. I, I can re- give a leaf update now. They're very crunchy. Oh, uh, yeah. most of them have fallen <laughs> off by now and they're 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 fun to walk on. Even when it rains, like give it a day, it's back to back to some good crunch, so I was
0: out on a windy day semi-recently, and I could genuinely start my own autumn leaf collection from all the shit that just ended (laughs) up in my hair on the way back. (laughs) So that was fun. Like a whole little pine branch ended up in there somehow. Um, Oh,
1: wow.
0: Yeah, it's it's great. Uh, (laughs) Oh, man. It feels like October lasted about a million years, but we're flying through November. I don't know what's going on.
1: (laughs) It's – I can't tell you. Yeah. I, I genuinely have no idea. Uh, Sign and I have a little wall calendar that we put up, and I like just periodically forget to change to a new month, like all the time. Uh, we had August up until like October, and then I switched to November. I'm like, we're we're like halfway done already. Like, dang. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, but it's uh,
0: weird, especially because November is so jam packed full of stuff happening. I mean, we had an election, uh, yeah, and like the whole week of thanksgiving there's stuff going on so yeah yeah it's weird it's like i I would understand it if time just passed at the same rate all the time it would be jarring but i'd still understand it but no (laughs) like we we can all attest to this
1: it's the (laughs) speeding up and (laughs) slowing down that gets you
0: yeah that's the part that i'm not sure about anyway um We could probably uh, send a letter to
1: James Time himself and be like, dear sir, (laughs) where do you get off?
0: (laughs) I have some grievances. Uh, Anyway, we could probably complain about the endless passage of time ad infinitum, just like the endless passage of time. But we should probably actually talk about the purpose of this episode, which was uh, the after show to discuss our videos. Uh, I would like
1: to imagine Ozymandias writing in a letter to, like, the time crew, like, <laughs> the loaded level sands are I stretching am? far away, and I'm not a fan of this. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but anyway, yes, um, speaking of of people like Ozymandias who were doomed to ruin, uh, Red, tell us about the last uh, Trope Talk episode that you had on a channel. Even when we start the podcast, on, like, absolute, like, one brain cell bouncing off the the giant, like, vacuous caverns that are our skulls, we always get there with some great segues.
0: <laughs> Look on my one-star rating, ye mighty in despair. <laughs> uh, I had a great time with doomed heroes, uh, and I'm honestly really glad that the video that came out of it was, like, good, because when I started writing this, I didn't know where it was going. Um, because I... When I posed the question at the beginning of that video, like, "Why do we like these stories? Why do we do this to ourselves?" Uh, that was a very real question. It wasn't just like a leading <laughs> framing sequence. I've genuinely wondered like, what part of this is fun? Why is this working? I don't understand um <laughs> In fact, Indigo might be able to attest that I did at one point go into the Rolling with Difficulty chat and be like, hey, guys, uh, we've all been watching AXU Calamity, right? Uh, Can you help me figure out why the fuck I like this so much? (laughs) Um,
2: Got some valuable
0: input from the crew.
2: Can confirm. Consider that checked off. Yeah. Uh,
1: Verified. Yeah. (laughs) Didn't even have to pay $8 for that confirmation.
0: (laughs) Ooh, spicy. Here's the
1: thing. This joke isn't going to age very well because in two years, Twitter's not going to exist. People are going to be like, what are you talking about?
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, no. They're going to understand the reference to Tumblr where you can buy two verification badges for $8. (laughs) Well, speaking of doomed heroes, I believe Red. (laughs)
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) Um, Good Lord. Anyway, uh... It was, um, it was an interesting process, just kind of going through the doomed hero stories that uh, resonated with me. Because, like, there's only so far I can get with stories that I didn't like, that didn't work for me. It's like, okay, I can unpack the mechanics of this, but demonstrably, whatever it was doing didn't work for me, so I can't find the, the secret sauce that makes these stories really hit. Um, so, just kind of... Honestly, Exu Calamity was the catalyst for me really writing through this because that was the first doomed hero story I've ever seen where I was like, I like everything that's happening here. <laughs> like, no part of this feels dumb or weird to me. Um, yeah,
1: the first word out of Brennan's mouth being "fire" is like, okay. <laughs> oh, <laughs> everyone we're in is doing.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, but it's cool because you know uh, when you're setting up a and D game, like. Player consent is kind of a huge thing especially with the modern understanding of how D&D is supposed to work So basically when you are setting up a game that's gonna end in a TPK like the players know going into it Like they have to it would be kind of unethical otherwise (laughs) Um, Which means you know everyone who's going into this game is going into it like with a character handcrafted To die spectacularly and fuck up as much stuff as they can on the way down um and, you know, this is kind of, it, it's bordering on the space of stories that I generally don't like. A lot of stories where it's like, it's its grimdark, it's hopeless, you know, the heroes die, there are no heroes, only bad things happen. And it's like, well, what, what's good about this? But then you watch it and you're like, I get it, but, but why? Uh, so trying to kind of solve that mystery was my... Uh, driving impetus behind figuring out the script for this thing which was like okay but actually what is the secret sauce why does this work and like it's not just oh if there's a hopeful message that helps but like it does that does help you know there are doomed hero stories where there is no greater message of hope or it's just like everything's kind of fucked and that's that's sad but the ones that have a little twist of hope kind of add this extra layer of meaning to it where it's like you're not just seeing somebody fail and die you're seeing somebody try really hard and even if they aren't rewarded for it you know, good still comes out of their efforts
1: Someone will be, yeah I mean, that's the difference between like you know where you cut the end of Rogue One, where it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, and then those rebels got fucking got in the hallway by Darth Vader. Ugh, the end, wow. <laughs> planet got blown up, everyone bites it. Man, that sucks. Versus like they give it to Princess Leia and then it's like, yep. ah, ha, ha. Now we have hope. there's that's a <laughs> yeah. very simple thing. And all I think there's also something like structurally about is this doomed hero story a prequel doesn't necessarily give it carte blanche to just be as like dire and, and awful as possible. But the understanding that this is filling a structural role as the, you know, instigating status quo of where the the actual story, so to speak, starts. Mm. you know, the your analysis of the Star Wars prequels I found very interesting because when you look at it, in a vacuum, yeah, there's this weird kid who then time skips to just being, like, kind of evil all the time and only ever makes the most evil choice possible <laughs> whenever given the opportunity to do so. <laughs>
0: yeah. I I mean, I've... This is something I've actually almost reversed my position on because uh, I have previously strongly held opinions about the prequels. Uh, I mean, many of those I do stand by, but one of them, uh, I think... I can't really hold anymore, which is the idea that it should work so if you watch all the movies in universe chronological order, like, all the plot twists are preserved because there are ways you could do that. Um, But you'd you'd need to, like, not show Yoda on screen for any of the prequel movies because Yoda's identity is a twist in the movies uh, and a twist that I really like. Uh, You would need to... Either hide the fact that Padme was having twins, uh, or hide the fact that Anakin survives and becomes Vader. Like, there are ways that you could do it to preserve some of the reveals if you watch them in chronological order. But you cannot write a prequel assuming that nobody is going to watch it with foreknowledge of the movies that came after it. Uh, So, like, holding it to that standard is unfair. Uh, especially because so much of the, the fun of that story is the dramatic irony of what's coming. You can tell that because that's why they kept hitting the Imperial March button every time Anakin glowered <laughs> at the camera. They were like, the audience is going to love this. Um, and it's it's interesting because the prequels are such a good like standout example. Not like as in they are well written, <laughs> but as in they are a very <laughs> helpful example. Yeah. They cover a lot of ground. Uh, They're extremely well-known, so I can bring them up as an example and just kind of assume that my audience is going to know what I'm talking about, uh, which is just great. That's solid gold for me. Um, But I also got in some other helpful examples, which was fun. Uh, This is the one where I I, I tweeted that I had back-to-back footage from Sonic Boom and Grave of the Fireflies, and everyone was like, what the fuck could you possibly be making a video about? And it's like, well, don't you look silly now? It actually made perfect sense. Um, But... uh, (laughs) I, I th- That part uh, killed a little piece of my soul, <laughs> having to do that. Um, but it was fun. It was it was helpful and, and useful. And I, I think it covered a lot of important ground, which is good. Um, sometimes, like, I don't really know what I have when I write a script. Like, I I write it and I record it and I edit it together. And then the people who watch it get something out of it that I didn't see was there uh, because I'd just been looking at it for too long. And this this was one of those cases. <laughs> there are a lot of very <laughs> sweet comments on that that I thought were very sweet. Uh Wow, I that remember was you said
1: that you you watched it the night before it went up, and you were like, "Oh, wow, this is really good." And I'm like, "Yeah, no, it was. <laughs> it really <laughs> yeah. was." I I, I think yeah. th- there is a, a very thin line around the the matter of like what is the difference between a good, you know, tragic doomed hero story and something that is just grim, dark, and punishes the audience for caring at all. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it comes down to to tone. It's kind of that that little intangible. Um, and sure, you know, being a prequel structurally helps to okay, this is a doomed hero. This isn't quite so much grim dark. but there there is a, very much like a, a je ne sais quoi about what makes a a, a good, at least to me because i'm I'm not as as steeped in this. Uh, <laughs> what makes a good doomed hero story that elevates it beyond like, oh, this is just grim dark because everyone you know bites it in the end and, and nothing good actually ends up happening.
0: Yeah. One thing, uh, again, I keep circling back to EXU Calamity just cause it was such a good example. But one thing that I liked about that is that everyone, the players in the DM go into it, like knowing it's going to end bad, you know, this is the Calamity. This is how basically the magic apocalypse happens. Uh, so, you know, the first three episodes, it's like, ooh, which of us is going to be the guy? Which of us is going to be the one who messes it up? Is it me sleeping, cuddling with a betrayer god? Is it you doing unethical, magical experiments? Who is it going to be? And then the final episode is basically like, no, 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 don't worry. This is bigger than all of you. What's going to happen now is you're going to see how much of the world you can salvage. Uh, because instead of it being two-thirds of the world is going to be wiped out, it's 100% of the world is going to be wiped out. How are you going to save that last 33%? And it's genius. It's a brilliant bit of DMing, and the way that Brennan rewards all of their efforts with little victories uh, is just—it's—it's it's pretty masterful. So if you—if you can like manage to get through it, uh, if you're at all interested in like D and D DMing, uh, story crafting, and how a creator, a storyteller can reward characters for efforts, even if it's not like you're going to win 100% and save the day, uh, how there can still be meaningful victories in the midst of defeat. I do recommend watching all four episodes of EXU Calamity. It's like 16 hours. It's a little soul-crushing, but then you can recover afterwards. <laughs> um,
1: as far as Critical Role goes, it's a very, you know, compact package. <laughs> it is, yeah. Uh,
0: and, of course, run by Perma DM and uh, noted extremely cool dude, Brandon Lee Mulligan. Uh, but that very about covers... So. Uh, my half of the the two. What's I thought up? you were about to
2: refer to him as like noted almond fan, Brendan Lee Vulcan,
0: which is <laughs> he, not inaccurate. <laughs> no, he is also a noted almond fan. Uh gone on record during the uh, the Critical Role DM best roundtable. out of context
2: clip from that session. But this is not what we're here to talk about. I'm sorry, I d- derailed a little bit.
0: <laughs> no, no, we we love the answer Your question, almonds. We we love we love someone who knows what he wants. Anyway, uh, Blue, your video, <laughs> Rome After yeah, Empire. Um, Speaking a of bit doomed about- things.
1: Yeah, the other side of that is like, okay, so the Roman Empire fell. What the hell happens next? Um, because, you know, on on paper, we we talk all this this game about you know the fall of Rome. It's still around though. So how did we? How did that happen? Riddle me that, asshole. The question of how we start from a Gothic king on the throne of, you know, the the Roman state, the Western Empire, not really a thing anymore, to the Byzantines show up and then the popes are in charge? How? Hmm. Question mark? Um, it, the way that I described it was it was one of the most technical videos I've probably ever done in the... History Summarized series because it's so much like a mechanical analysis of like, how do we get to this? How do we get to this? Where it was like, what is the physical makeup of the city changing over time? How do we get from Latin to the Romance languages? Um, And I showed on the map... Romanian, but did not say out loud Romanian, I apologize to the language of Romanian and any Romanian viewers who felt excluded um, Uh. as you so often are from the discussion of the Romance languages, and I am sorry for that. Um, But like talking about the, the way that the languages shifted and how the institution of the papacy grew from, it's like here's one of five ecumenical patriarchates and now they're like the one in charge of all of Christianity in Europe question mark how did that happen so i i had fun kind of like pulling all these disparate elements together focusing you know more so on italy than the rest of europe and then more so on rome than anywhere else in italy i could have talked a lot more about ravenna that's getting carved off into a separate video don't worry i'll get there (laughs) so it was it was cool to to look at that kind of structurally because it is so often skipped it's like okay Rome falls and then Renaissance Um, even you know for people who don't subscribe to the the Dark Ages thing because it's kind of bullshit um, it's mostly like okay we you know Rome falls, and then, oh, hey, look, Charlemagne shows up. But, like, but how? There's, like, 300 <laughs> years in between those two things. How did we get from one to the other? That that little stretch of late antiquity has so much, like, back and forth and back and forth that ends up setting the, the tone for what the, the rest of this kind of early medieval period will be. One of the comments that really struck me was someone suggesting um, how good of a setting Rome was or would be for a D&D campaign— solely based on the line that I had, um, tens of thousands living in a city built for a million, which sounds mm-hmm. extremely eldritch. Um, oh, yeah. But what I was thinking was it would be really funny or cool to to see from a, like, cultural and mythological, like, world-building perspective, the Trojan War gave us the Iliad and the Odyssey and the Epic Cycle. If Rome was still pagan during the fall what kinds of myths would have come out of that? Mm. Because you have this whole thing with, like, invaders and the internal corruption of the state. You can throw in a couple angry gods there. That would be a really cool... Like, if any of you want to write a a crazy (laughs) big mythological project, there's a hell of a writing prompt for you. Um...
0: Well, but that was
1: a, a thought that I was given by someone saying, like, oh, D&D setting. I'm like, wait, that's actually really, really cool.
0: It is. And it's it's interesting because I remember when I was doing the werewolf research, uh, one of the things that you find when you are researching historical things about werewolves is you find points where Christianity was bumping up with local for- folk religions and folk beliefs. Uh, and there were slight there's always been a difference between what is axiomatically put down by a religion and what the people who practice that religion actually believe in their day-to-day lives and oftentimes the day-to-day beliefs are things that would be considered her- uh, heretical or pagan by the religion that they ascribe to just because you know ultimately a, a lot of uh, a lot of religions and folk beliefs are built around trying to explain things that happen in day-to-day lives or, or things that affect the lives of you know the people who are believing in those things and that means, like, okay, axiomatically, the religion can explain the big stuff, but, like, on a day-to-day basis, I put this pie on the windowsill, and now it's gone, and it was probably fucking werewolves. I don't know how it works. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, the things that you believe in on the day-to-day scale are different than the things you believe in on the vast universal scale. Uh, so there—and I don't know the validity of this, because, of course, all these discussions of, like, old niche, quote-unquote, pagan beliefs are a little bit— uh biased in the reporting thereof but when rome was being sacked uh as i recall there Which was time. some sorry That's continue the thing. That's the thing whenever it happened it's like is it because is it because we're forsaking our gods for this other god is that are we in trouble uh because you know if your city is burning around your ears and the, the you know the the goths and the visigoths and the ostrogoths are all like piling on it's like it's, Jupiter, I'm really, really sorry. I <laughs> The other guy, he just looked so much like you, I got confused. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, it is it is also on, on the other side of that, of like if Rome was still pagan, what myths would we have gotten out of this? On the last podcast, we kind of discussed how odd it is to look back at ancient Greece and see their perspective on the Iliad and the Odyssey. like Because from us, those are ancient myths from ancient Greece. But in ancient Greece, those were ancient myths from the before times (laughs) from from the other people. From the Mycenaeans, yeah. Yeah. But they were closer. To them, it was like, those are our recent ancestors this mm-hmm. is it, it, it's kind of like what americana has about the founding fathers it's like yeah they were real people but also like oh he hacked down a cherry tree and you know uh punched old king george right on the jaw <laughs> <laughs> uh, a mythologized version of a real historical figure that people can trace ancestry to if they really try whereas for you know us it's like those are ancient gods and figures and 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 titans walking the earth and it's all mythological Um, And the idea of, like, if ancient Rome was still kind of doing that, what kind of stories would have come out of this hugely important overhaul? Because we've never... I feel like we haven't really seen that very often. We've seen myths after the overhaul has been lost to history. And we've mm-hmm. seen overhauls after the mythology has stopped being written. Yeah. But the only the only thing I can think of where we've seen, like, here's what this political overhaul looked like from the, the perspective of the myths, is uh, ancient Egypt, where some pharaohs would basically be like my god is now in charge. Here's the story of how that happened. Yeah. Or I believe in the case of upset, I am the true child of uh, Amun-Ra. Yeah. Here's the story of how my Immaculate Conception happened.
1: Um, Something like that, yeah. And it's
0: just written in with all the other myths because they it's the same thing. Uh, yeah. And it's it's odd that they're often separated because they don't have to be.
1: Anyway. Yeah, I, I think you can make a case for, for Ragnarok being a sort of like mm. softly Christianizing um, influence finding a sort of, like, in-narrative justification for itself. Yeah, but it, the, the of, idea
0: that Ragnarok is the most important thing that happens in Norse mythology is probably the Christian influence being like, the end of this religion is the only thing that matters about it. <laughs> I wonder why we're invested in that, but uh, anyway. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: Um, but I just thinking of, like, Theodoric and Odovaker, some people are getting on my pronunciation. <laughs> How did Odovaker, uh Odoacer, oh, get out of here with that shit. Um <laughs> Don't but, worry, like, I'll
0: do it as wrong as possible.
1: Edwiger. <laughs> <laughs> ah, <laughs> you're all
0: welcome. Um, <laughs> I'm the heel in this dynamic.
1: <laughs> Play but, my music. But the idea of like, you know, this barbarian king who takes over Rome, who was like born I think within the province of like Pannonia in the empire, and then this other like, you know, Gothic king who then takes over Rome from him and kills the guy at the truce dinner, like how is that not like just as dramatized <laughs> as any in the Iliad, that is gold right there. So um, it's, it's such a cool transformative moment in history that is almost so interesting by virtue of how complex it is that it becomes nearly impossible to actually get a good handle on if you don't. Mm-hmm like see the whole thing laid out and have a, a full perspective of like, okay, so there's Rome and then these dramatic guys and then the Ostrogoths and then the Byzantines and the Lombards and then the Pope and then, and then, and then and there's so many players that it becomes such a, a, a muddled confusing thing. But it is so neat when you see it laid out that it's like, oh, that's how we get to this idea of medieval Rome that so seamlessly exists in our heads of like the popes are in charge. Yeah, why wouldn't yeah. they be? And but seeing how we got to that, from the popes aren't in charge. In fact, the emperor's not in charge. The barbarian guys in charge. It was, it's a cool transformative moment, and it serves as a stealth prequel for pope fights. So I, I had <laughs> a lot of fun putting that together as a, a gentle coda to my to my Roman imperial um, yeah. series. So
0: and it's just a so really yeah. cool little missing link between two known points in the history of that area. You know, a lot of times yeah. I think people see history as carved into discrete chunks. Which is the way that history is most commonly written about, but the way it's lived (laughs) is one day at a time, just like everybody else.
1: Yeah, I think this is a, a type of video I'm excited to do more of in the future because there's a lot of moments in Greek history where it's like, okay, there was ancient Athens... And then, how did we get to slash from that to anything else? Uh, so that'll be that'll be cool to to tackle at some point. But yes, um, cool. that is a story for for a future uh, future video and a future podcast. But mm-hmm. um, as we uh, softly pivot off of the subject of of. Um, Greece and Rome and the old gods. Uh, I'd like to remind you all that our enamel pins are currently available in our CrowdMade store, CrowdMade.com/OSP. Yes. Right now, until the end of uh, Cyber Monday, they are available in gold, plated in gold. They're beautiful. It's to celebrate the upcoming 10th anniversary of OSP. We wanted to do something fun and different to 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 mark the uh, the the big uh, the big day uh, the big uh, I guess year um, the big so 10. Going out, yeah. Um, we may or may not ever do this again. We don't really know. So if, <laughs> if you want the gold pins, this is the last time we can guarantee we're going to do it because it is yeah. difficult to, to deal with multiple different kinds of inventory, a much longer discussion that is not anywhere near as interesting as how much time it takes. But if uh, you would like the pins, they are in stock. They are available. We're selling out of the Artemis and Apollo ones pretty fast fast cuz people yeah, really guys like those. those. Guys. So we will be able to take all the orders that we get, but once we run out of our our fixed stock of of 1500 pin packs each, we're going to need to print some new ones, which might take a little while. Yeah. It still ought to be able to get in before the holidays if you're thinking of this as a gift. They do make good gifts, but if you do want to get this on the sooner side, order sooner and then uh you can get the first batch that's already in stock and you won't, you won't have to wait for the new issue to be printed. Um, well, don't asking, run
0: to the shop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh,
1: Some people <laughs> were asking if um, the original versions of the pins with the black metal framing will be in stock. Those are what we're going to be selling after Cyber Monday is done. We're gonna switch back over to our fixed stock of regular pins. So if you have the original ones and you wanna complete your collection to match, totally valid, those will be in stock um, on sale after the Black Friday and Cyber Monday weekend. So um, that is that, Cleo. I need you to not destroy the paintings on my wall. <laughs> Thank you, little miss. Uh, <laughs> She's um, restless. So, yeah, they so are loud. very cool. They look so, so, so nice. So I'm, I'm really excited for, for people to get their hands on them because we've been planning this for, like, all year, and I'm like, in the inventory, and how are we going to do th- yeah. uh, uh But seeing it all kind of come together is, is very, very, very cool. So.
0: Yeah to throw yeah. a rock in the in the nice calm pool that we've just established. I've also been lobbying to at some point do a run of silver lined pins because I think that looks better on the cool toned ones. And I think it would be cool (laughs) to have like a, like a gold Apollo and a silver Artemis outline pin. And, and, you know, uh, so I've just been adding many more complications, but for now.
1: (laughs) Yeah. There there are a lot of things that we're excited to do in the future. Um, There are multiple ways to to frame pins, uh, but those are plans that will happen later on. And we can't guarantee when. So if you want gold ones now, (laughs) Get them now. Um, yes. Uh, but, uh, and
0: the, the intermediate, the, the thing that we sometimes do on these episodes when we have time and we remember that it's a thing we do is the recommendation of things that we've been watching recently that we've been enjoying. Uh, and mine is, I'm a late uh, joiner on this thing because Blue's been watching these guys like religiously since high school. Uh, but I only found them like this week. It was like, oh, these are good. <laughs> um, yeah. The channel is Inside Games. Uh, I believe they are a subsidiary of Funhouse. Uh, no. So no? The, the
1: way it works is... Um, Uh, Inside Games is a channel, um, founded by two former Funhausers, Mm. uh, Lauren Sontag and Bruce Green. Hilarious, very smart, very analytical people who do a gaming news show and also do, like, gameplays of stuff. Um, and they essentially, twice a week, along with, um, fellow friends, um, uh, from... Their uh, various uh, jobs that they've had before at different organizations. Um, got um, Charlotte, uh, Avery, Brian Garr, um, a couple other people um, that, that come in and, and, and help. But they do gaming news and talk really in-depth about a lot of um, news stories not just on the level of the games themselves, but on you know the industry labor conditions uh, in the games workforce. Um, really interesting economic stuff about how video games get made and what considerations go on alongside the artistry to make things happen the way they are. Talking about you know the legal stuff around monetization and loot boxes, which is, it seems kind of nerdy, but I find it really interesting. So I <laughs> yeah. think their analysis is spectacular. They put out a video or two every week and it's just really well-researched, really well-formulated. Uh, they're incredibly smart. They do just really good journalism, which is often lacking in you know internet commentary. Is they they research and present things in a way that's like, wow, this is actually like really well constructed journalism. Um, so I'm, I'm glad Red that that you've yeah. um, you found them and, and you enjoy them because I've I've been loving their work uh, since they started the channel about a year or so ago. Yeah, um, I mean the thing they're, is, they're a good I- gang.
0: I don't like keep up with gaming news, so this is the only way I have to kind of get it. And there's a lot of really hot goss in the gaming news world. <laughs> so, so like <laughs> watching through the backlog, it's like, wow, I can't believe they do that with Stadia. Wow, I can't believe GTA 6 had that leaked footage thing happen. Like it's just, it, it's fun, it, it, it sustains me. Uh, I'm gonna try and find like a specific video that would be good to recommend uh, of the recent ones that I've checked through. Um, I did enjoy their video about the Stadia. Uh but the most recent one they did 3 days ago was about a uh the the composer for Doom Eternal who's kind yeah. of like beefing with uh the Doom Eternal dev team because yeah. they basically they did something bad with his music and then tried to like Pay him like a six-figure hush money sum, so that he would take responsibility for the music being bad and then never speak of it again. <laughs> um, so that's the kind of drama that I love. That I don't get because game news is normally boring for me. So, <laughs> um, so yeah. I I recommend that one.
1: Yeah, they're Great. they're a really good gang. They do good work. Um, that is our recommendation for for this episode. And with that, let us shuffle along to the Q and A portion of the podcast. Woo.
2: Hello and welcome to the QA portion of the Overly Sarcastic Podcast, where we take your questions from Ask OS Pod on Discord. This first question comes from one of our lovely patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, support the channel, consider becoming a patron for a chance to have your question read first in a future <laughs> episode. This first question comes from Manamius. I hope I said that right, and if I didn't, I'm sure someone will tell me, inevitably, <laughs> as always happens. Uh, Blue asked for it. So, if you had to
0: write a non basketball related Airbud pitch, what go. would it be? <laughs> uh, so, by airbud pitch, we're saying the, the base premise must be: well, there's no rule that says a dog can't something something, yes. right? And yeah. I think I okay. do know what the ultimate answer to this question
2: is because it occurred to me while I was playing questions today. But I do want to know what you guys think first. Ooh,
1: I think on the episode with Armando, the joke was like a dog runs for president or something. Mm-hmm. Um, that does so feel uh, like
0: the most logical. Like in dog years, he's well over the you know the requirement <laughs> of the ages. <laughs> uh,
1: Hmm. I think because sports is a, a fairly like understood sports. concept in the Airbud universe, so I think we have to break out of that. Yeah. Right. We find... need world
0: building. Yeah. Uh-huh. Exactly. We need to so it's like
1: okay, you know, dog playing sports. Sure, we've all seen it a thousand times. <laughs> but I think I would love to have that that show it's like the masked singer except they do like cgi
0: Mm. and it's (laughs) like like a a
1: person like dancing and then like they they like green screen it onto it it's really gimmicky and stupid i would love for a dog to be on that show because it's like it's just you put a dog in a mocap suit and then translate that into some like you know ar person dancing
2: (laughs) in in this hypothetical pitch like to make this Airbud uh movie equivalent to the time period in which it came out the dog could compete on american idol and then you get your you know your cameos the american we idol get your, yeah i mean yeah, that guy yeah. was in
0: shrek for a cameo so he'd be willing all
2: to, three american it. idol judges were cameoing in the movie robots and they played oh, the yeah. watches that the guy who's like hey kid you want to buy a watch they're the watches that's a fun what? fact i love to share with wow. people that is the that's american insane. idol judges saying don't buy us we're fake anyway that's not related to <laughs> bud but it did feel like an appropriate wow. moment to share this fun fact
0: Well, I'd like to pose. Uh, There's no rule that says a dog can't take the Holy Sacrament. (laughs) (laughs) Air Bud 3, Pope Bud 1.
1: Okay,
2: you know what, Red, I think you've got mine beat. That's pretty damn good.
1: That is really good. Unfortunately, there actually is very specific Catholic doctrine that dogs do not have immortal souls, which is bullshit. Um, I'll go on record and say that that is bullshit. Um, But I remember hearing a priest say this to a group of people at my university's Catholic Center, I'm like, "Wow, heartless!"
0: Yes. <laughs> I, can, I now four, understand why. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just like puts a little paw print on the uh, <laughs> <laughs> on the grievances nailed oh, to the door. So <laughs> He's uh, running for pope. <laughs> <laughs> He's running for pop. <laughs> can you really claim that this good boy does not deserve his place in heaven? <laughs>
2: <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh yeah I was just going to say Airbud go- goes to law school just like mash it up with oh. Legally Blonde because what is the core concept of the Airbud series
0: Legally
1: Blonde because
2: the core concept of the Airbud series is like they exploit loopholes in the letter of the law and what yeah. is the greatest loophole of all there's no rule that says a dog cannot be a lawyer if he passes the LSAT they have to let him in
1: You, him you got
2: into right Harvard a little suit you have a little, suit, you have a little, little tie you know? of course of course
1: but it's like um, one of those um, it's like the bib with like two little shirt buttons and then uh, like uh, only the tie <laughs> yeah oh yeah
2: oh yeah Oh no, who's the, perfect
1: boy. perfect I
2: think we nailed
0: it I think we really I was thinking too mechanically
1: with like haha dog dancing but no those those are both fantastic <laughs> answers
0: <laughs> I want fan art of Pope Bud and Legally Bud. <laughs> Please send us
2: the poster for the hypothetical movie, Pope Bud. I need that fan art on my desk by Monday. You knew this was coming. Uh, but we've got a lot of questions to get through, so let's let's move on to this let's one go. from Alex Stucchino. Stukino? Sorry, again. Oh, this is a rough day for names. Uh, this is a question mostly for me and Blue because I, I don't think Red plays Pokemon okay. at all, but the new game is coming out on Friday and I'm very excited. Oh, uh, I, to... I'm not gonna
1: play it. <laughs> no!
2: And
1: blank <laughs> <laughs> God of War! <sighs>
2: <sighs> to all, the OSP crew got transported to the Pokemon world. You all become Pokemon gym leaders. What would your gym and team be themed? So pick a type. What's your gym like?
0: Right, so I've played Pokemon Go. Uh, and i've watched detective pikachu Uh and uh got about 80 percent of it uh and i believe i did at one point watch pokemon the first movie mewtwo returns yes Uh, with the dramatic speech in it that we all yeah it's not the circumstances of one's birth yeah dan green killing it ash gets turned to stone and then all the pokemon cry and (laughs) he comes back to life and it's, it's fine uh so that's all i got uh i exclusively choose Pokemon teams based on aesthetic and not at all type matchups. I don't know which types are good or bad against other types. Um, I still have a uh, Charizard named Trogdor the Burninator as my uh, go-to. Good. (laughs) Good. And I believe my, my companion in Pokemon Go is an omenite named Dr. Squid PhD, just because Excellent. Uh, <laughs> when I saw that, I was like, what the fuck is that thing? Uh, and that's how you know uh, uh-huh. I, I needed that. Um, so I would have no type affinities. Uh, Good, you At all, the because... core concept of the gym system as it exists in the
2: series, yeah. I love it. <laughs>
0: They're all just my, my beloved friends uh, that I selected solely for
2: aesthetic purposes. <laughs> You're really the kid who's challenging the gyms is what it sounds like.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have my all Eevees backup team. Nice. Um, <laughs> I have a bunch of Pikachus in different hats for the seasons. Um, <laughs> Good. Yeah. Uh, and probably a Gyarados because I think those things look tight mm-hmm. as fuck. And I like the myth about them where it's like yeah. it's a fish that swims up the waterfall and becomes a dragon. A um, while ago,
2: I got bored and I needed an art prompt. So I texted our college group chat and I was like, hey, everybody send me your team and your type if you were a gym leader. So Blue <laughs> and I kind of already have answers to these questions and equivalent fan art for them. <laughs> Aww. But. Yeah uh i've been a ride or die for the electric type since day one. Second pokemon on my team is always whatever like the good electric type of the region is hmm. that's it sophia's gym and i do think that the concept of just like the gym should just be a film set that you have to run to the best of your ability would be pretty funny because it does <laughs> add an element of do you understand what a boom op is and how to make them stand uh <laughs> that I is personal to me <laughs>
1: One of the mini games is like the gym leader is calling out different camera movement instructions, (laughs) like "Okay, now pitch," and you have to figure out like how do you get around the
2: gym. Right, and like later generations, they're always like sometimes you have to like step on things a certain way to make paths move. Mine is just like if you can tell me what the correct direction the camera should be moving right now is, the path will like slide in that direction, and then you can proceed in the gym. There's a mechanic built into it there somewhere, but.
0: Electric type. I think I'd like to Zip I'd like to amend my previous answer all those yes. things are still true about my gym But you only get it by doing one of those spooky like creepypasta out-of-bounds glitches uh, <laughs> And like you expect it to be like creepy and ghost type, but it's just like, oh, you're not supposed to be back here <laughs> um,
2: <laughs> This was cut content I thought that you yeah. were pretty clear about that when you had to glitch through the wall in order to proceed Bro, I'm DLC only. What are you yeah. doing? <laughs> but Blue, what's your, uh, what's your type in your gym look like?
1: I would want to make the absolute dark souls of Pokemon gyms. So what I would do <laughs> is I would bait the, the would be champion, like the idiot that they are uh, with a, a pure ruse. So I would set up an ice gym. That's uh-huh. very much on theme. You know, it's a lot of ice stuff and like all the challenges are ice related. And then all you get the to fight me, the gym leader, lots of puns. So you would prepare a fire-type team, because Pokemon Mm. is just about the the elementary concept type matchups. You get to me with your fire-type Pokemon, and then I have a water-type team, and I fucking clown on your ass, (laughs) pummel you into the dirt, and send you back outside where you belong.
0: (laughs) Wrong stage of water, bitch. I like how (laughs) we've gotten like four different questions at various times about like, what kind of supervillain would you be? What kind of evil empire would you run? And you're always like, oh gosh, I just don't know. But the minute we get an innocuous Pokemon gym question, you're like, and yeah. that's how I'll crush them and leave them <laughs> bleeding at my feet. TVs. That's also
2: a different answer than you gave when we did the little fan art uh, oh. like a year ago. Because Blue, you said you were going to be a normal type gym leader. I did. And I liked I did. your team yeah. a lot because it was like a ferret and Because uh, I <laughs> an wanted Eevee, Eevee to be the main focus of the, yeah ah. <laughs> Big old yeah. legendary yeah.
1: man. Yeah, legendary yeah. Reggie Gigas. Because um, like earlier I was thinking like, oh, I would do like an all Eevees gym, like wouldn't that be cute? But like if I mm-hmm. want to be a Pokemon gym leader and actually make a gym that is like interesting mechanically to play and like a good Dark Souls game is a joke at the expense of the player Mm -hmm. I would want to have a bait and switch ice type water type gym
0: (laughs) nice Nice. I can't I can't fault it thematically Uh, consistent they can't complain
2: water and ice do have a lot of things in common there's just different states of the same matter um but very very fun all around. I'm looking forward to those games, and I'm absolutely devastated, Blue, that you will not be playing them. <laughs> One stuff with God of War, maybe.
1: Cyan's still playing through Arceus, uh, and I've got I've got a lot of God of War to play through.
2: Old woman shakes fist at the sky about children's <laughs> video game. But let's move on to another question. This comes from Primus405 for all turkey, stuffing, cranberry sauce, sweet potato casserole, and mashed potatoes. One has to go, and why is it cranberry sauce? So, uh, regardless of how this user feels, which <gasps> one of these I'm items on the Thanksgiving list are you taking off the table?
0: If they're talking about like canned cranberry sauce, I can't speak to the quality of that, because my mom always makes like a homemade cranberries and clementine mm. sauce, and it's yeah. just so delicious and sweet. That sounds good. Um, I don't like sweet potatoes, so anything with that is going mm. right out the window for me. Everything else is staying.
1: I, I always feel weird when people serve the sweet potatoes with the rest of the meal it's like this mm. this throws off the whole palate I'm not supposed to be having dessert in the middle like whenever people make sweet potatoes they always make it way too sweet because it's very desserty they load it up with like like pecans and all kinds of mm. like fun you know desserty nuts and whipped cream and junk and it's like this is great I'm not supposed to be eating this in the middle of a very savory Thanksgiving meal so I would politely bump the sweet potato whatever it is that they're doing yeah. to the the dessert section of the evening because it it's not it, it it gums up the works. It it doesn't it doesn't fit with the rest of the meal. It's too sweet.
0: At, at that point why would you even leave the sweet potatoes in there? Because all the other stuff it's like, oh it's like it, it's it's sugary, it's nuts, it's like whipped cream. Like what's the sweet potato adding? <laughs> just <laughs> get excuse, rid of it. Just, Red,
1: just it's admit, an excuse. <laughs> okay, fine.
2: I do I feel like I gotta I don't have the same affinity for cranberry sauce that red does, so if I was picking at this table I would bump it, but I also don't believe that like a gelatinous texture belongs on the table. I have the same problem with mint jelly on like Greek Easter. It's just, it's mm. just the one texture that shouldn't be there, and uh, I don't know, I guess yeah. I'm, I'm more willing to accept the sweetness of the potato than I am the existence of
1: the cranberry sauce. Because also some people you know, when they make the cranberry sauce, whether it's the canned stuff or whatever, it's just, it's it's way too like, it's like a jam or like a jelly, and that's just not that's not right. That that's it. has gotta like, be sauce like. And and Red, to your point, when yeah. it's sauce like, it's good. But if it's, it's really great. Like if you can like poke a fork in it and lift it up, that's not that's not yeah. cranberry sauce. That's jello. You've yeah. brought jello to Thanksgiving dinner.
0: What is this? The fifties? Are you a dissatisfied <laughs> housewife? Get out of here. <laughs> oy, oy. But uh
2: Yeah, looking forward to another day of the year when I get to stuff myself on food I did not have to make. Mm. Uh But speaking of stuffing ourselves, we have many questions yet to come. So here comes another one from Geekdom. How do you write a first draft? I'm trying to write a book and I have different elements of it figured out, like the characters, the basic plot line, timeline of events, a magic system, and a semi-functional government, but I'm still not able to write a first draft. So do you have any advice for like getting that first draft started? Our
0: faces just did some very interesting things. Brett and
1: I both went wide-eyed, the yeah. same exact way as when uh, Kermit showed up in the Macbeth video. <laughs>
0: <laughs> How do you
2: write a first draft? Oh boy. it's kind uh, Kind of an impossible question in some ways, because there is kind of like everyone's writing strategy is different. But when you guys are like putting together your videos, do you have a way that usually gets you into the writing process? Is it like well,
1: there's no rule that says a dog can't be a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist.
0: (laughs) (laughs) New running bit for the podcast:
2: make (laughs) Airbud references
0: whenever possible. the thing is, for video scripts, uh, the stakes are really low because yeah. they're really short. They're really short, mm-hmm. and then we record them, so we're we're writing them to be spoken aloud, um, <clears throat> and that dramatically changes the tone that you take with them. Um, I start off all my videos as a bullet point list of notes. Uh, I just basically read through it. Um, I might have links to my sources if it's something that has a lot of sources or if it's mm-hmm. just like, you know, like a chunk of Journey to the West, it's like it starts here, these are the main events that happen and then uh, I leave it alone for like a couple days, let it percolate, come back to it with fresh eyes, Generally, find out what quip I want to start on and kind of let it flow out from there. But this is not how I would recommend writing a draft of a story, which it sounds like this person is asking about, mm-hmm. because they've they've clearly done like a lot of road mapping and planning. Um, but and the other problem here is that the thing that I write is like a long form. I was going to say the <laughs> other the other variant you could attack it from is how do you
2: plan out Aurora, which is kind of inherently a different format.
0: It is well. The thing is. I've always had trouble writing out first drafts because rather than completing the first draft, I keep polishing the parts of it that I already have. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'll just like, I'll write out the first chapter and then I'll, like, leave it alone. And then when I come back, instead of adding on to it, I do the reread to, like, oh, where was I at? And then I'm like, oh, wait, I've got an idea to change this. And then I end up with a really polished first couple chapters. But, like, you're kind of Zeno's paradoxing your way into never actually making progress. You keep retreading the parts you've mm-hmm. already done. So I'm bad at that. But this is great if you're doing incremental progress on a long-form story, because that means that, like, when I reread the storyboards that I have for the next chunk of the comic, the parts that aren't finalized and on the site yet, Uh, I keep polishing those. Sometimes I'll rework dialogue right up until the point where I fully export it because that way I can just keep polishing and polishing it. Or I'll reread all the storyboards up to a certain point just to figure out, like, what what does my brain expect to happen in the next panel? And then I'll figure (laughs) it out and I'll be able to storyboard from there. Um, So that's the style of writing that my brain works best with. But I've never had any luck sitting down and writing out a full first draft of a full text. Mm. Um, Even when I'm writing little short stories for my own entertainment, I'll usually build them up a little bit, but then instead of finishing them, I'll just be like, I'm done with this, and then I'll put it down because it's not going anywhere anyway. The stakes are really low. So I, I, I can be helpful in, in the specific space of I'm going to be publishing this like one page or one chapter at a time in perpetuity, but I can't really help with how to write out a full first draft and then fix it all at once. Mm.
1: Yeah, I having had a little more experience with the more like, you know, first draft, second draft, third draft, final draft, hope it's Mm -hmm. good, and then maybe try to publish. Um, My instinctual answer to the question when Indigo asked it was quickly, (laughs) which is if you're trying to tackle a first draft, write it to the best of your ability to get it done Trusting that it will be nowhere near what the final product will look like not because Mm -hmm. it's bad But because it is just the first version that you will have on paper that you can then use to build off of and some of it Might stay very similar to how it was when you first put it down some stuff You might tweak some stuff. You might be like oh this this needs a whole nother scene here or this this character interaction just completely doesn't work or you Know I can punch up this description of whatever, but do a first draft you know try to maintain a pace and just go through the process of of writing it, not stopping yourself every three lines to make sure that it's perfect, but just kind of just go, just try to set a pace and maintain it for however long this, this draft of yours is, get through it, Take a week or two off. Take a month or two off. Heck, take a year off, depending on what kind of project it is. Come back with fresh eyes and be like, okay, cool. Because you'll have in your head what your broad intentions were. Mm -hmm. And then you can go through it and let what's on each page surprise you. And you'll see like, oh, okay, do I actually like that? Since I know what my intention was, do I like how it looks on this page? Do I like how this sentence works? And depending on whether the answer is yes or no, you can play with it. And then... You know, finish another draft and then come back, however much later, and go through it again. Giving yourself a little bit of time before each of your drafts is a good way to let the you know the RAM clear out, so to oh, speak. Yeah. So yeah. all of the the you know the the little itty bitty the seventeen versions of a scene that you had in your head, all that stuff's cleared out. So then when you come back to it, all you have is the intention of what you want it to look like and what's actually there. And then if you can make those line up great, and then that's what the the repeated drafts are for. Um, my other suggestion would be, if this is the first thing that you are writing and you are aiming for something like a novel, consider instead actually writing something that is novella-length. This is a piece of advice that Daniel Green likes to give because it is very good advice, which is mm-hmm. starting at, you know, a novel or 400 page, 800 page, whatever, mega book is, ha, um, maybe we have that much world building in our, our various, you know, notes files, but will that all go into a book that will work and make sense? Dodgy. Yeah. So starting Mm -hmm. with a smaller, simpler project, like a novella length work is a great way to get the experience of writing a story start to finish, do the first draft, second draft, third draft, iterate, and then like let that be it. And you'll have a nice little complete thing, which then brings the experience closer to what Red, you were just describing of mm -hmm. having it be kind of like a constant flowing Process rather than like sitting down to draw all gazillion chapters of Aurora and then publish them all at once. He's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> no. Slowly over mm. the course of, of of you know time, work through different short stories, you know, novella lengths, um, heck, novelettes, you know, whatever. Mm. Uh, rather than starting with you know big book start.
0: Maybe yeah. start small
1: if, if you're feeling yeah. like getting into it.
0: We're actually back in the zone where I feel confident to talk about this because uh, <laughs> that's that's absolutely right. I think that, like, if, if this is your first big project, sitting down to write the full thing is going to be hugely difficult. Uh, not just, like, in terms of the actual process of writing, but in psychologically staying in the zone of, like, I want to do this more than I think it will tire me out and stress me out. Um, but I also think uh, that the... It can just be helpful if you already have this world and the characters and the world building and stuff like that. If you already have a lot of that, you can just pick a little vignette, like a little story that maybe you're never going to show in the main thing, and just write that out. Um, you can even do like if you want to make it even less like official, you can just kind of sit down with like a little word file and just go through and write mm-hmm. out just individual bits, individual scenes in prose, uh, little little snippets of dialogue, little things playing out. Um, before Aurora published, like years before, I would do little individual chapters or individual just exchanges, adventures. It's like I was writing fanfic for my own work that didn't exist mm-hmm. yet. Just little bite-sized things working on the assumption that, like, I'm the only audience for this and I already know what's going on, so it's okay. Yeah. Um, yeah,
2: That's kind of similar to a a process that a lot of screenwriters use when they're putting together a script is writing out scenes on, like, index cards or flashcards, and then you can move them around physically to kind of put together your movie because films obviously get cut up quite a bit so sometimes the order that you write something in is not the order that it actually needs to be and it's easier to move them around visually when you have them lined out of that but I think that there is something to be said for having an outline even if it's not um, the world's strictest thing I personally all of my writing experience comes from screenwriting and academic essays which are kind of different beasts than a novel but Mm having something that you can use to guide you as you're writing of just like, I checked off the introduction, or I checked off scene one, Uh, and then you can just continue to go through it almost more like a checklist that it is a hard and fast rule of how your story is going to go. I find that incredibly helpful when I'm starting a first draft of anything because it does give you sort of like checkpoints to hit. And even if you go back and revise things later, because you almost certainly will, at least you know, like, I've made progress, I can see my progress, and that's incremental. Um, But kind of more... To Red's point, like yeah, but you can always just jump around and write a scene that's stuck in your head and like get it out onto paper, and then you just have that as a thing you can insert or do nothing with. It's up to you. Um, Mm -hmm. That's kind of the fun thing with first drafts is there's not really any hard and fast rules, but that does sometimes make them tricky to know how to approach. If you know your concept of it is like I have to sit down and write the whole first draft, like that's not there's no hard and fast rule that says you have to do that. You can start however you'd like, and you can go as far or as short a distance as you want in that first writing session. Yeah,
1: and no amount of agonizing over the the exact, like, process of how am I going to write this Mm -hmm. is, you know, more important than sitting down and actually doing it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the the process of just sitting down and trying Mm. for it is worth a lot more than, than trying to, like like, in a lab, like, precision engineer, the best way to write a first draft. The best way to write a first draft is to write a first draft. Yeah. Yeah. Is unfortunately <laughs> <Yeah>. the answer.
0: <laughs> I have also heard uh, that it's, it's generally good, like, if you reach a point where you're stuck and you're like, oh, I just don't know what to do right here. Just put it, like, bracket it. Put in yep. brackets, like, here's what I need to happen, and then just move on to the next thing where you know what mm-hmm. you want to put down on paper. Yeah. Sometimes when I'm, even when I'm editing a video, like, when I'm writing through a trope talk, I'll be like, I don't actually, I don't know exactly what visual I want to put here yet, so I'll move to the next clip. Uh, because if I sit there and stew a about it. I'm not making any progress on any direction, and I'm not mm-hmm. going to figure it out by staring at it harder. So Yeah,
2: yeah just keep your yeah. m- momentum going. Try and just keep doing something, even if it's not necessarily progress in like the direction that you wanted. At least it's still progress. You're still exercising yep. that creative muscle, so to speak. Um, but we've got more questions to get to. So this one comes from Chaos Incarnate, who wrote their screen name with many numbers in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, to everyone. Very what? chaotic. <laughs> <laughs> what minor detail in your favorite piece of media absolutely infuriates you to no end? <laughs> oh. So, nitpick your favorite what? media for a second here. Is there nitpick like a little detail that really bugs you in something
0: media. that you love? Ooh. That's so interesting. That, that, that's like a really interesting question. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Um, gosh, I have to think of like what's my favorite piece of media? Um... <laughs> Hmm, and what would I nitpick about it?
2: If not <sighs> like your ultimate, ultimate favorite, something you like a lot that might have right. something yeah. you nitpick in it, you know?
0: This is more of a a meta thing. Uh, there are a lot of stories that I like, or like shows, mm-hmm. where I think that like, <clears throat> like the first X seasons of it are flawless, and then they should have just stopped. Oh, yes. but. All the post-canon content, like, all the comics that they tie in have mm-hmm. to follow the continuity of the later bad seasons, <laughs> which <laughs> means all of the content you get in the status quo that I like is just the stuff that's in those first few seasons. This is this is the thing that happens with, uh, with Reboot, where the first three seasons are flawless, and season three has, like, a finale that it should have ended on, and then the last season is really bad and then there are tie-in comics and stuff but and like a sequel series that is truly abysmal because if you're building off of a bad foundation it's going to stay bad Mm -hmm. for the most part um so that bums me out. It's also like, if you read the tie-in comics for Firefly, they're all post-Serenity, which means half of the cast is dead and a yeah. lot of the dynamics aren't good <laughs> anymore. So it's like, yeah. yes, really? Okay.
1: I This is this is very <laughs> nitpicky, but I think it's in the spirit of the question. Um, Batman the Animated Series yes, is yes. a beautiful and treasured piece of, of media that I, I love more than a lot of people um, <laughs> but I, I I always feel like uh, when the animation style changes between seasons three and four from the very mm. like original like deco very kind of like ornate all these people are like like very larger than life drawn characters and then in the fourth season they do a kind of slimmed down animation redesign to bring it more in line with what would later become the style of the Justice, Justice League cartoons Lee, yeah. Batman Beyond and I love the style in those shows but it always bugs me that the animation in Batman the Animated Series switches halfway through. It feels very mm-hmm. jarring, like it's two different shows. So yep. I would love to be able to watch Batman the Animated Series where the whole show is in that one original animation style. And I like the way that it looks in season four. I really do. But it it just seems so, so mismatched to me that I'm like, oh, I'd rather like cordon this off to, to Batman Beyond and, and Justice League that's like again this is like so nitpicky <laughs> but I'm like oh I I really like the original version yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very like it's 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 big and mm-hmm. it, it looks very like painterly in a way that the later season just it just doesn't it looks yeah, it looks more yeah. cartoony which I don't like as much
0: the red sky season takes some getting used to for sure um,
1: yeah. I mean the red sky season is a look.
0: Oh, yeah, Bye. it is. I mean, it's it's a look that's worn better in Batman Beyond. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. That actually does remind me. I have one grievance about the Justice League animated series, which mm. I otherwise think is really, really good. And that one grievance is that they Superman's writing is just a little bit inconsistent. They gave him this character trait in the Justice League animated series where he frequently struggles with anger, uh, which is an interesting trait. Uh, I just don't think it works very well with Superman, and Mm. in the episodes where that's what they're focusing on, he he gets very frustrating up to and including the one episode that I refuse to watch when I rewatch it, Clash, where he's manipulated into fighting Captain Marvel or Shazam Mm. by uh, like a really, really obvious Lex Luthor scheme where he puts a device under a building that looks like a bomb to his X-ray vision, but actually isn't a bomb. So that, oh, look at that, Superman just destroyed this low-income housing development, and Captain Marvel, I mean, Shazam tried to stop him, how sad, and it's just like, this is fucking stupid, and it's dumb that you fell for that. Uh, And, like, the rest of the character writing is so good, it's just that bit where it's like, you could have just made him a nice boy from Kansas, you didn't need to do that, (laughs) it's okay. (laughs) Um... Yeah, yeah uh, this is not, I want to preface this, not my
2: favorite piece of media. Not even really in the top 50. But <gasps> it is a nitpick that I have that bugs me every day of my life. Um, in the movie Magic Mike, and I need you guys to stay with me on this one. I know that that's not an easy sentence to open with. <laughs> mm-hmm. the, the core plot revolves around Channing Tatum's character wanting to start his business, which is why he has to get into the Magic Mike of it all. And when he goes to the bank to try and like pitch his business and why they should give him a loan to open a storefront he has a book of furniture designs with him that he has made that are like what he's trying to sell it's like driftwood inspired like i'm using reclaimed materials furniture and they open up the binder and inside there's one picture of a table that is a sheet of glass on top of a barrel and then they flip the page and it's a sheet of glass on top of two barrels and it continues in this trend with only one furniture design And I'm like, I wouldn't have given you a loan either because you have an Etsy shop, sir. You do not have enough for a storefront here. You have not convinced. The The whole core problem of that movie is that he cannot get this loan and it is totally justified because he has their production design department made one furniture design. For a man trying to start a furniture business. It bugs me so much. It makes it impossible to watch the rest of that movie without constantly thinking like, yeah, man, maybe you should design more furniture. Oh, wow. Um, again, not my fair piece of media,
0: but incredibly yep. nitpicky. And it does bug me wildly. <laughs> I love it. That's great. Um, I also thought of a, now that you got me on the superhero thing, (laughs) uh, not Magic Mike, obviously, but the other stuff, Uh, I I remembered uh, something that does bother me about the show that I actually genuinely do rank up as one of my favorite pieces of media, Avengers, Earth, Mightiest Heroes, Mm. Uh, because season one is rock solid. It's so good all the way through. And season two is a little hit or miss. Uh, And one of those big misses is the treatment of the character, the Hulk. Uh, mm. because throughout the first season, he's got this great arc of kind of learning to be accepted and, like, learning to trust that the group actually does kind of like and accept him. Uh, but season two, the first half, they do secret invasion. They do the Skrull invasion plotline, and it starts with Captain America getting replaced. Everybody loves Captain America. Everybody trusts him. Replacing him with a Skrull makes sense. Mm-hmm. The problem is, as the Skrull, like you know he he makes a lot of decisions that that screw over the team in general ways one of them is basically getting the hulk locked up in a government facility uh under the like oh you know it's it's for everyone's good and hulk's like okay and then he they leave him on the shelf they figure out the scroll thing is happening they over They defeat the Skrull invasion, they don't go get the Hulk, (laughs) he's still in a government prison. Eventually they go and get the Hulk, and then when they get him out he's acting kind of weird and he keeps like grabbing at the back of his neck and he keeps going into weird rages and it's so obvious that he's being like, he's got like a chip in his head that's like setting off his rage to to make him untrusted. (laughs) And then this other Hulk shows up, a Red Hulk, who's like, hey guys I'm just like the Hulk but better and more reasonable and like military trained and they're like. Wow, we sure do trust this new Hulk <laughs> implicitly. it's It's the most textbook idiot plot I've ever seen. Everyone is acting so stupid, except for the actual Captain America who's like, "I can't believe all of you." hoax our teammate what are you doing so he goes off and breaks out banner and helps him out and i think only wasp is like yeah you know what you're totally right i don't know what i was thinking either and then they get him back and he's like you sure took your sweet time rescuing me and i'm like yeah they fucking did buddy <laughs> you're completely right and then they're like you want to come back to the team and he's like nah i'll just do my own thing for a while and leaves i was like no come back <laughs> your dynamic wow. with the group is so good when you're well written uh. That's the There's one part I can't forgive.
2: Having a character kind of just be, like, damseled or otherwise indisposed during the back half, like, during most of a season is one of my favorite things that could happen in TV. It's not a nitpick because I genuinely love it, but in Power Rangers Dino Thunder, the mentor character is trapped in amber for a lot of a certain <laughs> season. And I love it because they don't move the mentor figure trapped in amber, like, out of the layer or anything. So he'll just be in the background of shots, like, frozen, like, in carbon... <laughs> And I think oh, it's maybe no. the best part of that series. Like, it's not, I can't list it as a nitpick because I do very much genuinely God. love it. But well,
0: as a connoisseur of damsel plot lines, I feel like those are only fun when the rest of the cast acknowledge that that's a thing that they should be worried about. Or, I feel like, again, when the like, camera
2: acknowledges it <laughs> because it's constantly in the background of every shot while they're trapped in him. I, I just feel like if
0: someone's stuck in, like, a government torture prison, you should probably have yeah, that higher on the priority generally. list than, like, let's go recruit Hawkeye again. It's like, <laughs> what am I? forgetting banner oh no
2: anyway um yeah lots of nitpicks to be had out there but i think we've only got phone time wallet
1: for... keys hulk damn it
0: <laughs> we've got how time... do you lose a giant great monster you forget, forget to, to cherish, to cherish. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've got time for
2: one last question here and this one is for blue so red you've got some time to uh prepare Ugh, for the outro limber um, up, get my stretches in from lucifer morningstar to blue if you ate dark lunch what would be your ideal meal
1: dark lunch Ah, uh, yeah okay uh, so yes. this is a great question because i uh being a, a basic bitch go to sleep uh approximately on time uh for a typical sleep schedule um my dark lunch i am the kind of person who I, I think if we we as we've established on previous podcast episodes, if I were to have like some some ice cream for dessert, not mm. dark lunch yet, <laughs> but mm-hmm. for ice cream for dessert, I would take like a little you know little Ben and Jerry's pint, take a small spoon <laughs> and have like like, Four or five scoops and put it back, which led uh, my my college roommate at the time to witness me doing this for years. He's like, "How are you so like weirdly restrained about how much ice cream you eat? Like, do you kill for sport? Like, where do you where do you let this out?" Um, so I probably, in keeping with that, would not have a very robust or extravagant dark lunch, but I would probably like preempt the next breakfast. So, like, a bagel would be good and enough carbs that it would just knock me out that mm. late at night. Um, uh, maybe, like, a bowl of cereal I've had a couple times. Just, like, you know, it's it's 1 a.m. Oh, fuck, I'll have some cereal. <laughs> yeah. um, sneaky, like, early breakfast is essentially the, the the rare handful of times where I have had dark lunch. It's almost always just, just pre-breakfast breakfast. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Those are all very respectable ways to trick your brain into going back to sleep. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. And what's that... your usual dark lunch? I forget.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it, uh, it varies. Uh, but usually it's some variety of fried egg, toast, mm. sometimes bacon or sausage if I have it on hand. Um, g- generally just some kind of like I need something hearty and I need something that's like – because it's hard to go to sleep if you're hungry. But sometimes if you're like the wrong kind of hungry, your brain doesn't like feel it. It's just like something's wrong. You don't feel good, but you don't want to go to sleep. (laughs) Um. Sometimes I'll like wake up because I, I, I had dinner at a weird time and then I went to bed way later. So like I was already like 90% of the way to the next time you need to eat. And then I fell asleep and slept through it. So I wake up and my body's like, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know what's wrong. And then I'll eat breakfast and my brain will be like, there it is, back to bed. And it's like, what the fuck, what? Okay, uh, so I, now I understand why people eat meals at regular times of day. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, like white or sourdough toast, fried egg or two um, something proteiny, maybe like yogurt yogurt cups if I have them just because it's good it's kind of still what I would do for breakfast at the same time but like nothing too crazy like sometimes with lunch that's when you start getting the meals that are really heavy just like big bricks of stuff Um, yeah and or like that's when you get things that are like it's like a salad with like a whole chunk of meat on it or something like that. that like Around lunch is when those start becoming acceptable things. And I think that for dark lunch, you really got to be winding down. Like you, you can't be yeah. carb loading at 1 a.m. That's not a good idea. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Your
1: body's
0: not yeah. going to know what to do with it.
1: The times that I have actually indulged in a dark lunch is it's because – I, you know, I had dinner at, like, like, six or seven or whatever, and then it gets to be so late that I'm like, uh-oh, I'm hungry again. Quick, mm-hmm. wait, shit, fuck, what am I going to do? <laughs> and then in a panic, I make the fastest possible meal that I can, which ends up usually being, like, a bowl of cereal. So, yeah. um, the, for me, there is no artistry to dark lunch. There is only uh, instinct and <laughs> uh, evolutionary need. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the hunter-gatherer rears from within. <laughs> yeah. Good. I, there is, I, I haven't made one in a while, but I remember there was some kind of, like, life hack going around where you basically set up to make an omelet, and you'd basically put two pieces of sandwich bread in the omelet, let it fry up just enough that it, like, solidified into the bread, and then you'd sort of, like, flip it over and arrange it so that you end up with a perfect, like, mm. fried egg omelet sandwich that's, like, fried into the bread, um, like a toad in the hole situation. No, 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 no. Toad in the hole. You have a hole in the bread. This is like you you pour the egg mixture into the skillet, and yeah, then you
1: obviously <laughs> I don't know what toad in the hole is. <gasps> uh, uh,
0: and then you lay the two pieces of sandwich bread like next to each other in the the liquid egg of the omelet. Mm. So it's like egg and then sandwich. Uh, Then you let it cook in until the point where the egg is cooked into the bread just a little bit. It's very thin, so this won't take very long. Then you flip the whole shebang over, so the two pieces of bread are now on the bottom, and you have basically a circle of egg on top, and then you can sort of fold the edges in, and then flip one half of the bread and egg mixture over the other, and you end up with a perfect omelet sandwich. Mm. On the rare occasions that it doesn't fall apart. (laughs) Um,
2: (laughs) You know how it is with TikTok
0: life hacks. Yes. well,
2: on that uh, informative note from Brad, I believe we have more information that we do need to hear from you now to end the podcast. Uh, could you do the outro for us? Yeah, Your best sure. dark outro, if you would.
0: <laughs> well, now I want one of those sandwich things. Uh, thank you all <laughs> so much for listening. As always, we'll be back in two weeks with another very special, fun episode about uh, the next two videos that we're going to put out on Fridays, as is our wont. Uh, as mentioned in the mid-roll, do check out uh, the pins if you're interested and uh, the channel recommendation we had inside games because they're a lot of fun. Uh, if you want the hot goss in the games industry, uh, that's, always, that's always fun. It's, it's always just nice to see drama that I'm not invested in. Um, <laughs> I think that about covers our bases. So until next time, I've been Red. I've been Blue. And this has been an overly sarcastic podcast.
2: Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of the Overly Sarcastic Podcast. We'll be back on November 30th with another thrilling installment featuring special guest Yellow, uh, aka Ludo History, but if you miss us before then, check out Overly Sarcastic Productions on YouTube. Got a question for the pod? Head over to Ask Pod on Discord for a chance to be featured in a future episode. If you enjoyed the show, please rate us and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform, and if you really enjoyed the show, consider becoming a patron. Links to all that and more can be found in the show notes below.